And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, July 11th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why government spending on blockchain is small but on the rise. Plus, this National Science Foundation grant will help forecasters see deep inside clouds. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it's been a decade since agencies faced that dreaded S-word, sequestration. And for the first time since 2013, Congress is opening the door, even if just a crack, for the return of budget sequestration. In the Federal Report, Federal News Network's Jason Miller writes about why federal and industry executives should pay close attention as the 2024 appropriations process kicks into high gear. Yeah, so why are we talking sequestration again, Jason? It's kind of unbelievable that here we are again a decade later and then this word keeps popping back up. But one of the things that Congress did when they passed the debt ceiling bill back in June, Tom, was they said there's a provision if you don't have a spending bill passed by January 1st, across the board, you're going to get a 1% cut. Kind of like a, we'll call it a poison pill, though not necessarily the, it's not going to kill you, it's just going to make you a little upset. But that would kind of trigger that automatic 1% cut would be a sequestration. And, you know, I spoke with a bunch of folks who've Pay attention to Capitol Hill, former congressional staff members, and Mike Hettinger, one of them, president of Hettinger Strategies and former oversight and committee staff members, goes, lawmakers really are saying they want to get it done by January 1st because that 1%, even though it's small, is not really palatable because there's enough of them on Capitol Hill that still remember what sequestration did. And Tom, I can tell you, talking from industry and talking to other agencies, it took years for them to recover from those big cuts. And if you remember, again, Tom, Obama administration had to cut discretionary spending by about $85 billion in 2013. That's ended up being about 7.8% cut to defense agencies and a 5% cut to civilian agencies. And somehow the fact that I guess some Republicans in the House came back with Well, let's go with 2022 levels instead of 2023 levels, as Democrats thought they were agreeing to in the debt ceiling deal. Is that why 2024 is going to look like 2013? Well, it will look like 2013 in many ways because of the push by the Republicans, because of of the push from some of the newer members who the Freedom Caucus, as an example, who really think government spending is out of control. I think that's where part of the this concern is that 2023 to 2024 process will look like the 2013. And, and that's when we got that dreaded S word. And, Tom, you can't say that that S word too many times. Otherwise, it's like Beetlejuice. It will appear. So you got to be careful. <laughs> that's right. But but the big issue that I'm being told is that there is a huge delta between what the House budget or House appropriations bills look like today and what the Senate appropriations bill potentially will look like. The Senate really stuck close to the caps. They really listened to more of what the administration did because the Senate is run by Democrats. The House run by Republicans, they're about 80 to $110 billion less than where the Senate is. That's a huge delta. Again, Mike Hettinger tells me, you know, usually you see a delta of $15 billion, $20 billion between the two House and Senate bills, but, but really they got to find a number to coalesce around, and I think that's the real big concern concern that that delta is so high and so large that, okay, what's really going to happen? I think it's clear that there are changes that are coming. And even if agencies see flat budgets or small cuts, that's still going to be challenging. Right. We could see double S sequestration following shutdown, <laughs> the way things are going. And so what are some of the things federal executives ought to do now so they can be prepared for what could be a really rough budget time? 
There's a few things folks I spoke with recommended. First of all, Emily Murphy, a former House Small Business and Armed Services staff member, former administrator of the General Services Administration. She says it's still a little too soon for panic, right? There's still a lot that's happening on Capitol Hill. But she said the first thing you need to do is understand and, and do this quickly. What, if any, are the lawmakers' concerns about your program? You know, I spoke with Jeff Newman, who's a government's contract attorney for Thompson Colburn. He believes things are going to be safe, like national security programs, like veterans programs, even things like cybersecurity and digital services are definitely going to be safe. He says, we may not see huge increases like we've done in the past, but Newman says, listen, a lot of the things that are supporting domestic programs, whether it's manufacturing or additive technology, supply chain issues, things that support Ukraine, all of that will probably stay flat or see a little bit of an increase. What others have said was, you really have to focus on those, quote unquote, Tom, we're using air quotes here, woke programs that, you know, the Republicans have pointed out uh, things they don't like. And, and that includes what, how Newman described it as softer programs. And those could be like the greening of government, you know, electrifying the federal fleet, getting federal buildings to zero emissions, things in that realm. And if you live in those programs, I think you need to really be aware of, of what Congress is doing and what they're saying. I also spoke with some others. One of the things David Berto said, and I thought this was very interesting, he's with the Professional Services Council. He said, you got to do three things, because if you know David, Tom, you know, he's all around threes. He's a man of lists, yes. He's a man of lists. And one of the things that, that David said was, you need to spend your money what you have in 23. Don't sit on that money because you have to give it back. You end up obviously not, if you don't move it forward, you end up, you could lose it. So, so definitely don't, you got to spend your money for 2023 and then get things started because if you're under a continued resolution, because CRs don't allow for new starts, those will not be considered new starts. So get the money out the door. Second thing he said was start to plant the seeds for out years, 2025 and beyond. What does that look like? You know you're going to have a 1% cut or, or, or 1% increase in those years. So what can you do today to really position yourself in, in, in good spots? And then the third thing, and this is, you know, this is David to a T, be prepared for unexpected turbulence, right? He goes, there's still a lot to, that's going to happen. There's still a lot of unknowns. Uh, and this is especially true for DOD. You know, he's a former DOD executive, so he understands that even closer. All right. So there are signals, dates, people that like to watch the tea leaves and like to watch what's happening in the committees, how the Congress people are interacting. What should people be watching for that are concerned with budgets in the next couple of months? I think the one big thing that you have to watch out of what's going to happen between now and obviously September 30th, end of the federal fiscal year. You know, Matt Cornelius, a former Hill staffer for Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee, he says, start looking at the bills, understanding what the differences between the House and the Senate is. He says, you probably will see more of a scalpel cut versus a hatchet cut. The hatchet was from 2013. The scalpel, what he thinks is going to be happening today. Again, some of those programs that, that you know, members of Congress, specifically Republicans, have, have really been vocal about not liking. The second thing I think the other date you should look at is between uh, obviously October 1 and then December 31st. Can they get some sort of omnibus pass? Can they close that delta? Now, these are maybe obvious for most people, Tom. Oh, of course, we're going to look at those dates. But I think what's really important is what kind of progress gets made, what kind of negotiations are happening, and what where does the White House play in this, right? Because they put their budget out back in March. Their budget was obviously increase, increase, increase across the board. Congress and especially the House is, is, are not really excited for those increases. So what role does the administration play in negotiating? In the meantime, you got to pay attention to what Spean said. Are members coming out against a program or your program specifically or your agency specifically? And then you should you know, start to work with your congressional affairs people. Make sure you're part of meetings. Make sure you're part of budget briefings. You know, executives have got to be more proactive probably now today than they had to be in previous years because 
again, not just this Delta, but because there is this mood on Capitol Hill that there's too much money being spent and we need to bring it back. And, and that's, I think, even true in the Senate to a certain extent. You know, they, they're not expecting huge increases in the Senate. And a 1% increase, while sounds nice, inflation time is still 3 4%. So in, in many ways, you're still going to face less money in the overall scheme of things. Right. And it's going to come down on contractors to some degree who don't feel they've been adequately compensated for inflation that took place, you know, a year ago and a year prior to that point. And the other unspoken issue here is that agencies, at least some of them, are awash in money still. There's still COVID relief money, despite that clawback. There is still infrastructure bill money. There's still Inflation Reduction Act money. So, I mean, there's a lot of money around. It's not necessarily in the regular appropriations channel, though. Well, Bloomberg government estimates about $217 billion will be spent in the federal fourth quarter for uh, just on procurement. And, and that's across the board. Now, they also made a really interesting uh, prediction that a lot of this will go through multiple word type contracts, government-wide acquisition contracts, the schedules. They, they really you know, blanketed said a lot of this will, will go through those, those really popular, easy, more easy to use type of contract vehicles. But I think, Tom, your point is, is, is right on in the fact that the money comes late, though earlier this year than previous year. Again, David Berthaud told me he's looking at some data. And one of the things he noticed was agencies are spending at a higher rate in the second quarter this year than they did previously. He expects them to spend at a higher rate in the third quarter this year than they did previously. So he thinks while the fourth quarter will be busy, may not be as busy as it has been in maybe years past when agencies didn't get their appropriations till April or March or April timeframe. The other thing that, that I think contractors need to be aware of is are their programs, are their contracts in that world of, okay, the things that are being targeted by the Republicans in the House and or Congress more generally. And if they are, that's where those government affairs people come in. We'll use the dirty word lobbyists can come in and really try to educate Congress about why this program matters, why this contract related to this program affects a broad range of people and can really hurt an agency's mission. So there's a role for contractors to play just as much as federal executives. Yeah, if you don't get on the merry-go-round, you can't get the brass ring. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his federal report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this National Science Foundation grant will help forecasters see inside clouds. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The National Science Foundation has awarded a $90-plus million grant with the purpose of improving understanding of weather. It went to the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and the result will be an airborne phased radar giving 3D pictures of weather phenomena. Here with the details, NSF's Chief Officer for Research Facilities, Linnea Avalone. Ms. Avalone, good to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. And first of all, the program under which this grant was made is something called the... Mid-Scale Research Infrastructure Track 2. Thank you. You beat me to it. And what is that? <laughs> Make it all? easy for you. Let's t- <laughs> tell us about that program, first of all. Certainly, yeah. So our Mid-Scale Research Infrastructure Program was first put in place in 2018, and it was specifically designed to fill a funding gap between two long-standing programs, one for major facilities, things that cost more than about $100 million, and our major research instrumentation program, which funds mostly single instruments up to a cost of about 4 or $5 million. Got it. And the group to which this grant went, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, UCAR, what is that? 
UCAR is a consortium of about 120 universities and institutions that do work or educate in atmospheric sciences. And UCAR is the managing organization for the National Center of Atmospheric Research based in Boulder, Colorado. They've been in existence almost as long as the Science Foundation has, so since the early 1960s. And what do you hope to get from this grant? I mean, phased arrays of radar is nothing new. That's a technology the military and I think some of the civilian agencies, NASA and NOAA, already use. So what are you expecting to come from this? Right. That's a great question. So phased array radar, as you said, has been around for military use for quite some time. But we've actually never used it really for scientific purposes to study clouds, to study severe storms. So what this technology will do is replace existing and some retired radars that have been used for atmospheric research for many decades with much higher resolution, spatial and temporal resolution observations. So UCAR will be retrofitting existing equipment with the means to become more accurate? Not exactly. They're actually developing a whole new radar. So it's a different wavelength of radar than you're normally used to seeing. So, for example, National Weather Service radars use what's called S-band, and that's a 10-centimeter wavelength. This technology will use C-band, Charlie, which is a 5-centimeter wavelength. So it's a completely different wavelength. And these will actually be implemented as flat panels that are mounted on the sides, top, and tailgate of a C-130 aircraft. And where does the C-130 come from? So NSF owns a C-130 aircraft that's also based at NCAR. It's been highly modified to do atmospheric research. And it's white, not gray. It is white and blue. (laughs) Okay. So by going from 10 centimeters to 5 centimeters, it sounds like, and I'm just thinking about this, you get more than a simple doubling of the resolution. Oh, absolutely. It has less to do with the wavelength than it has to do with the technology itself. So if you think about an image of a weather radar that you've seen, right, it's a dish that's spinning. And so that gives you spatial information as the dish spins. With phased array, you have a panel that has many thousands of very small transmitters and receivers, not just the single big dish that focuses that energy in, but an array of small transmitters and receivers. And those actually allow much higher spatial and temporal resolution. They can be operated very quickly, electronically. There are no moving parts. So it's a really great advancement in what we'll be able to do. And just a goofy question, it sounds like you'll have to cut holes in the plane to get the signals inside. That's exactly right. Yes, there will have to be some relatively modest holes in the side of the aircraft for energy power to go out and signals to come in. We're speaking with Linnea Avalone. She's Chief Officer for Research Facilities at the National Science Foundation. And the grant recipient, UCAR, this consortium of colleges, sounds like you've got hardware, software, and lots of other development to occur simultaneously to create this system. Correct. So the National Science Foundation and NOAA have actually been funding the early development of this technology for a number of years. Uh, So it's pretty mature. And this award will actually allow UCAR to go out and purchase the phased array radar panels from industry and do the installation on the aircraft, do the final development of software, 
and do all the testing for deployment. Now, this will forever change your aircraft, the one that you have. And it will. And Science Foundation is okay with that. Yeah, the panels can be taken off, right? So it's not a permanent change. Yes, cutting the holes in the side of the plane will, will be a permanent change, but that's all done according to FAA requirements. So it's very safe. But yes, the panels can be added and taken off for different types of projects. All right. Well, maybe an extra pitot tube can plug the holes in the meantime until the panels <laughs> go back. And what is the effect of all of this? What will learnings do you expect to happen when this thing is flying that are not possible now when looking at clouds and atmospheric phenomena? Right. So I think the fundamental thing here is to get something in the air. Right. So most of our research radars sit on the ground. And that means that you are limited to observing the weather that comes your way, right? With a certain distance that you can see from that radar. If we put this radar on an aircraft, we can take it to places that don't have ground. For example, we can fly it out over the ocean. So we can be studying hurricanes as they develop and strengthen and intensify. There's a lot to be learned about processes that cause hurricanes to intensify that we don't fully understand. We can also go to the high latitudes and study severe winter storms, areas that don't really have good radar coverage. And we can get close within safety margins to storms that are spawning tornadoes, for example. So we expect to be able to get a lot more information about the physical processes that are happening in these storm systems. And do you expect the processing of all of that data gathering to occur on board or downloaded later when the plane lands and then sent to a supercomputer? Yeah, there'll be a little bit of both. So there'll be some real-time analysis of the data to help guide the flight track of the aircraft, but then the real detailed work will be done on the ground. Now, there are planes, I think NOAA operates them, that you see them, you know, sometimes on television when there's a hurricane and they fly into the eye and it's gorgeous and then they fly through the outer side of the uh, hurricane and it's a mess again. Do those planes or could those also benefit from this? Once you build one, then you can replicate it. Absolutely. And that's, I think, I don't want to speak for NOAA, but I, I know that that's what they're hoping for, right? So that's one of the reasons that NOAA has invested in the development of this technology. The planes that you described, they're P3s, and they have a fairly limited lifetime. NOAA expects to retire them, I would say, in the early 2030s. They are currently equipped with an older radar technology, and NOAA is very much hoping that this APAR technology will prove successful and that they will be able to adopt it for their next generation hurricane reconnaissance aircraft. Because there's also the P-8, which is a jet, and can Correct. this technology, I mean, a C-130 and a P-3 are roughly the same speed because they're prop-driven. Right. Can this work on a jet that goes faster? I think in principle it could work on a jet. I'm not sure what the aerodynamics are of putting such thing on a jet that would fly faster. Uh, right, yeah, a so, lot of engineering. Yeah, somebody would have to look at that. Interesting. And so what's the timeline and when would you expect this to start flying and seeing what it sees? Yeah, so we are expecting that things will be ready to fly in about five years, uh, so in 2028. And I would say, you know, pending successful demonstration that other folks could be adopting that technology within a couple of years thereafter. Linnea Avalone is Chief Officer for Research Facilities at the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, cybersecurity comes home to roost for federal contractors. But first, why government spending on blockchain is tiny, but it's on the rise. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Agency spending on blockchain is a tiny fraction of total technology spending, but maybe an important one, and it's growing, according to analysis by Dell Tech. Here with more on what they're spending and why, Dell Tech Advisory Research Analyst Alex Rossino. Alex, good to have you on. Thanks very much, Tom. Good to be here. And just set the basic stage for us, blockchain, which a few years ago was touted as the next thing since the jet engine or something, is just a very tiny little amount of money. Give us the numbers first, and then we'll talk about the uses and the use cases. Yeah, sure. Federal uh, spending on blockchain technology is uh, in the last three years has pretty much doubled. So whereas it was just over $5 million in 2020, it's now close to 12. So I know, as you mentioned, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the billions and hundreds of billions that are spent by the federal government on technology. But it indicates that there's work going on and that there's interest as well. And let me just ask this off-the-wall question. Could it be that blockchain is offered as one of the long lists of services by cloud services providers, and therefore usage of blockchain through something that the cloud offers is just buried in cloud spending but may not show up as blockchain? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I have definitely seen that trend when it comes to advanced analytics and when it comes to cybersecurity spending, so those kinds of capabilities. Blockchain spending is not quite as clear. There is some, but it's difficult to parse out exactly what might be delivered, say, as a software, as a service versus, you know, an on-premise use by our individual instances by uh, agencies. So my inclination right now would be to say that it's probably more just one-off uses by agencies for research and development and exploration. But I think that the cloud is probably a very viable avenue in the future. Sure. But in the meantime, you can buy blockchain as a type of software, just like you buy a database or a development tool. Right. You can do that. And this is one of the interesting things about the analysis that I did of the data I was able to find on FPDS. And that is that I'm not sure exactly which blockchains they are experimenting with. So if you go on any cryptocurrency trading site or anything, there are thousands of them, right? And they all have all different use cases. So they're called cryptocurrencies, but they actually are software. So then they have different uses. Many of them are for logistics. Some of them are for uh, supply chain tracking, cyber cybersecurity, things like that. So determining which ones they're actually experimenting with is something that I haven't been able to suss out yet. And you make the distinction between the blockchain itself and there's a lot of spending on blockchain analytics for forensic purposes or whatever. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about who's buying it. The Air Force, by your analysis, is the largest, but everything else is civilian. So when you add up all the civilian, it way outweighs what DOD is spending. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Air Force is really looking at it for logistics purposes and for uh, predictive maintenance. So they're kind of looking at tracking the different kinds of maintenance that have been done on different air platforms and then tying it to analytics. But when it comes to the civilian agencies, you see that uh, the, the FBI and the SEC and Treasury, which is really the IRS, are using blockchain data analytics in order to try and track down transactions. So 
I mentioned before that there are many types of different blockchain software, and many of them are called cryptocurrencies. In this case, we're dealing with cryptocurrency transactions versus blockchains that are being used for other software purposes. We're speaking with Alex Rossino. He's advisory research analyst at Dell Tech. And that's an important distinction, using it for research or for trying things and engineering types of stuff. But it's not widely in production as a ledger to store data that it's recalled, except maybe that- for the Air Force. That's true. That's true. You know, there's some other places that they're uh, looking at it, too, like um, at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. They're examining blockchains as a potential a solution to the quantum encryption problem. So you've probably uh, you know, heard about uh, quantum computing uh, being a threat to current encryption methods. And so they're really experimenting with uh, how to use blockchain or integrate it as a way to harden encryption. So that's kind of fascinating, too. Yeah, of course. What do they say? The Chinese have stolen and all the data they want. They're just waiting till they can encrypt it when the quantum comes around. So maybe (laughs) they've closed the barn door after the cow got out. But talk about the analytics side, because I think in forensics and crime analysis, understanding what's going on with blockchains, which is discernible with analytic tools, not your own blockchains, but the ones that are out there, is something agencies are getting into. Right. So one of the sort of great misconceptions about cryptocurrency in general is that it's anonymous. There are some that are designed to be anonymous, but it's really better to look at it as pseudonymous. Uh, I actually can't believe I actually pronounced that word correctly. Well done. Uh, Thank you. So, you know, anyone who uses cryptocurrency, you have a wallet or what's called a wallet and it has an address and that address is immutable for that blockchain. So, you know, if you have a Bitcoin address, then that's always going to be your Bitcoin address until you create a new wallet. So any transactions linked to that address can be easily tracked and traced using advanced analytics. It's just a matter of agencies that are seeking to identify illicit sort of transactions. So whether it's... um. I don't know, cartel activity or uh, oligarch activity in Eastern Europe or something like that. They want to uh, try and identify which blockchain wallets or which Bitcoin wallets are linked to that individual or that entity. And so that's what the analytics are for in order to try and unpack that. Yes, because they are simply long hashes, right? The uh, addresses and the transactions. And it's actually possible to trace that to an individual or to an IP address. It is if you have confirmed the identity of the entity or the individual linked to the address. So once that's done, uh, you can track any uh, activity on that wallet. And this is what agencies are trying to do then? It looks like it, yeah. The ones that we're looking at are either law enforcement uh, or cons- talking about are either law enforcement or tax enforcement or uh, trading enforcement, so Securities and Exchange Commission. So, you know, they would, the only reason I can think of that they'd be using blockchain analytics is really to uh, unpack these transactions and understand where money, quote unquote, is going. And I also wanted to ask you about the inclusion of blockchain requirement in some of the big government-wide acquisition contracts coming out, if they ever do Mm -hmm. come out. How does that get baked in, and what are they asking for, the agencies? So they're asking for expertise in engineering and working with these kinds of technologies. It's still a very new thing, especially in the federal government. It's not like cloud computing where everyone has cloud instances now and everyone knows uh, how to use SaaS. But when it comes to blockchain, it's still being uh, really understood and developed, especially the use cases. So when you have large vehicles like Polaris that actually listed as a requirement to have expertise in it, it 
bodes well for investment for the future, uh, but it also creates a little bit of a problem for the vendors who will be bidding on these contracts because finding people who actually have this kind of expertise is very difficult. It's very niche right now. And also the private sector pays incredible salaries for that expertise. So government and its contractors will be competing like they are with cybersecurity talent, will be competing for people who have that kind of expertise as well. That's interesting because having that expertise as a requirement doesn't mean it's going to get sold. It's almost like telling people to have anchovies in the cupboard, even though nobody's going to be wanting anchovies. But it's a cost there for the companies to maintain this knowledge that may or may not be something on a task order. That's true. And it may never appear. And if it does appear, then you have to scramble. And a final question. I mean, blockchain has been around for decades in banking and finance as their ledger. Why now? What's different now than was different 20 years ago? So I think it's really uh, a couple of things. One is uh, simply the attention that's being drawn to it. Bitcoin is now uh, approaching $31,000, and that's the blockchain that really got everyone's attention when it came out in 2009. But the other thing is simply the efficiency of the technology. Something like Bitcoin is extremely inefficient because it's very slow. The transactions are very large for the most part, and there have been attempts to uh, mitigate that through uh, different kinds of things like adding protocol like Lightning Protocol, et cetera. And they've had some success there. But there are others that have been developed like uh, Stellar or XLM, which has been developed by IBM, which are extremely fast and they are extremely useful. So you can use them and apply them to different sorts of cases, cybersecurity, identity verification, again, like I've said, tracking logistics, supply chain. So the uses are uh, growing and the attention is growing because of the viability of the technology. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand, it's like chicken and the egg, but uh, they kind of work in a circular pattern now. Alex Rossino is Advisory Research Analyst at Dell Tech. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with his blockchain analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, cybersecurity comes home to roost for federal contractors. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Contractors will somehow be living under it, and there's still time to comment on it. It's the revision to NIST Special Publication 800-171 on Protection of Controlled Unclassified Information, CUI. That's not the only cyber policy affecting contractors. We get more now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, this is something that uh, I guess the comment period is still open for a few more days, and uh, you recommend people should make sure they know what's going on here with NIST. Thanks, Tom, for, for having me, and you're exactly right. We at PSC are grateful that NIST has opened the comment period on this draft revision of this very important NIST standard and the special publication. It's been open since May, but the comments are due this coming Friday, July 14th. And we've gotten a lot of feedback from PSC members all across the board. And I'm happy to go through a couple of the, the key highlights for you with, with you now. Yes, please do. So there are a few areas uh, of particular concern. You know, PSC represents services contractors. And so a lot of the technology pieces that come to play are important. Now, the origin of NIST 800-171 is embedded in another NIST standard, 853, which really looks at federal information systems, et cetera, for the government itself. 
171 was meant to be patterned off of that earlier NIST standard. Um, however, there were some divergences. And so what Rev3 does is tries to align this contractor standard of protecting controlled unclassified information with that earlier standard. And there are several areas where we have some concerns regarding the cost of implementation to small businesses, such as they've reorganized or recategorized some controls. And sometimes small businesses, you know, when, when they're taking on a, a new set of standards or that's new to them, are going to encounter some cost tails, et cetera, to get this done. And we have some concerns. So in our comments that we'll be submitting this week, we're going to talk a little bit about what this third revision means for small businesses. And the cost of implementing it is what? They would have to buy certain products that would make them compliant, or they would have to have services that they themselves use to get themselves into align with this? That's exactly right. And in addition, what we appreciate about NIST, not only that they, they allow us to, to comment on these draft revisions, but also they're taking a more flexible and, and risk-based approach where organizations themselves, contractors themselves, can look at their unique circumstances But I think some small businesses are going to need some support, either walking them through or additional guidance that clarifies what they are subject to um, versus, you know, what someone, a large contractor might have in terms of the depth and breadth and extent to which they'll have to be in line with certain controls. And uh, there are no deadlines at this point, right, that are in, I mean, the standards doesn't have deadlines. It's not a policy to implement. It's, it's a set of standards that at right. some point the agencies might say, okay, now you got to be 171 compliant. Right. And, and, and it is evolutionary. And that's why, of course, why you see a draft revision three. This is something that is a living document and will continue to, to change over time. One area where we do have some concern is that they want companies, entities that can have controlled unclassified information to do these independent assessments that are, quote unquote, current, but that doesn't define current. So these are that's an example of an area where needed clarification would be much appreciated at this point. Another needed clarification is, you know, Rev3 obviously indicates that there was a revision two ahead of it. Um, and it would be really helpful if NIST could put out a red line of what's different in revision three over revision two. This is a very complicated document um, and it would be really helpful, particularly to small businesses, but not only to small businesses, to see what exactly has changed. And I think everyone is wondering about this in the context of CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program that DOD can't quite get out the door, but yet if it comes, would compliance with 800-171 help you toward CMMC? Exactly right, Tom. So CMMC has been in a holding pattern now for a couple of years, and contractors are tracking it very, very closely. We, we always hear rumors uh, in the rumor mill about when it might be coming out, CMMC 2.0, etc. That is another area where PSC comments are really going to look at NIST to provide some clarity regarding how does NIST 800-171 Revision 3 apply to CMMC? How much conversation, how many conversations have they had with the Department of Defense in order to align 800-171 to associated requirements? CMSC is one of them, but it's a very important one. And the other area is what are the flow down requirements, right? So when you look at a prime contractor, you know, you have privity of contract with the government and they can put in certain requirements. But what are the the flow down implications for that into subcontractors? And as you well know, Tom, we are looking at for every one prime contractor, you have multiple, multiple layers of multiple, multiple subcontractors. And so we'd be uh, looking for clarification from NIST 
on the flowdown requirements. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And if you move up a notch from CUI, Control Unclassified, you get into the classified area. And now there is this latest memo on the security review that followed that horrible breach coming out of the Air National Guard a few months back. And this is basically uh, from the Secretary of Defense for defense agencies, but uh, PSC feels contractors are part of this also. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this topic, Tom, because, you know, a couple months a couple months ago, the, the Secretary of Defense released a tasker to take a, a an in-depth security review of what was going on with what we call the discord leaks. You know, it's the Air National Guardsmen up in Massachusetts, but also it's it could be indicative of a broader issue regarding um, access to information and who gets cleared and, and how do we protect the information that needs to be protected most. The impact on contractors is going to be interesting. The, the secretary, after that review, signed out a memo. It's a couple of pages. Uh, we haven't seen the review. That is classified for obvious reasons. But the task list that came out of it is not. Um, and it's a couple of pages. It was released on June 30th, and it, it focuses a lot on DOD component heads and the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. And we, and you look at what is being asked, and it's review of SCIF requirements, and that's the Sensitive Compartmented Information Facilities, SCIFs, um, some of which are you know owned and operated by contractors or the Special Access Program Facilities, or SAPF, those are can also be controlled with the involvement of DOD officials. And so when we're looking at this task list, we're trying to see what impact will it have on contractors. And those are two areas. What are the requirements for SCIPs and SAFFs? What are going to flow out of that? And some of the deadlines are coming up soon. It's Some of them are July 31st. Some of them are September 30th. This is a fast-moving train, as it should be, but we're hoping for additional contractor involvement as, as implementation gets underway. And there are also contractors working in government-owned and operated SCIFs in some situations. And the question I've had, and maybe you've thought about this at PSC, is suppose you are a contractor and you see some National Guardsman or some other classified government person, someone with clearance, and you notice by hook or by crook that, hey, they're downloading stuff that shouldn't be downloaded or they seem to be taking it with them, some kind of activity. Should a contractor report that if it's being done by someone working for the government or a uniformed service member? That's a great question, Tom. And I think, I mean, the obvious answer is yes, but how somebody reports somebody else, um, particularly if it's a government official um, who is you know, allegedly downloading stuff that they're not supposed to be downloading and sharing it if they're if they're not supposed to be sharing it. When you're a contractor, there have to be rules in place on how you go about reporting such things, to whom, etc., um, and hopefully with no adverse impact on the the work that the contractor can do. Right. Um, right. And, it's non financial you know, whistle protections. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so we're looking for from a contractor perspective, that, that guidance that is needed, not only f- how to control facilities and information itself, but how do you how do you tackle issues exactly like the one you raised? All right. So there's a lot to uh, worry about at this point. I think there's always a lot to worry about, but, uh, but now we've got documentation uh, to, to, to focus on and then figure out how to implement the tasks at hand. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Social Security Administration runs a service that allows financial institutions to digitally verify the Social Security numbers of their customers. Backers of the system, though, say it's at risk for what they call a death spiral, 
from a steep increase in user fees. This comes as the system has been highlighted as a way the government should reduce improper payments and fraud. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, tell us more about this SSA system and the death spiral it's in. So it's called the Electronic Consent-Based Social Security Number Verification System, or ECBSV for short. Or not really short, but it's been around since 2020. Congress directed SSA to establish this fee-based system as part of the Banking Regulatory Reform Bill that passed back in 2018. And it provides authorized users with an automatic yes-no answer to verify whether a social security number, name, and date of birth math SSA records. And it's quietly become really one of the first federal systems that offers real-time digital identity proofing. But there's a problem. Katie Wexler is co-executive director of the Consumer First Coalition. She says ECBSV is working well, but the fees that have increased drastically over the last couple of years are putting the entire system at risk. Here she is testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee late last month. I do not say this lightly. The ECBSV system is at risk of collapse if changes are not made. We do think this new tier structure is going to discourage use from both the current users and possible users. One user that initially was expected to pay $276,500 is about to be expected to pay $6.25 million for the same service. That's 22-fold increase over just two years. That discourages use. That's like Netflix saying you're... a month subscription is going up to $330. Yeah, and this is something that SSA is charging. What what else do we know about this whole fee structure, Justin? Yeah, SSA is required to recover the funds for both developing and operating ECBSV. It's a fee-funded service. It's actually outside of SSA, what it considers its main mission of providing federal benefits. So it kind of has to be something that pays for itself. When SSA launched ECBSV back in 2020, its fees were much lower. It was about $400 a year for a user to submit up to 1,000 transactions or names and social security numbers. And then it was up to about $276,000 a year for up to 50 million transactions. So essentially, you know, a couple cents per transaction for some of these financial institutions, not a lot for them. But in the latest fee schedule published back in May, Those submitting between 15 and 20 million cases will be subject to $6.25 million. And those between 25 million and 75 million will be subject to an $8.25 million annual fee. So even for these banks and credit card companies, a lot more money. The new fee structure goes into effect in July. I talked to Jeremy Grant. He's coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition, and he pointed out that the costs of developing the ECBSV system may have gone a little bit higher than what SSA originally anticipated, and that's what's driving the increased costs. Industry is perfectly fine having all of this DC reimbursable, but if you're dealing with a number much higher than anybody ever expected, and then you're saying that the whole thing has to be recouped in three years, or what you're basically seeing in the new fee structure that SSA has proposed is that the rates are getting so expensive that we think it's unfortunately going to further disincent use of the system, which is then going to force SSA a year from now to raise rates even more. Yeah, good reason they're calling it a death spiral. So what does SSA have to say about this? Well, as Jeremy Grant pointed out in his response, their position is that they have to recoup these funds within the next three years. And they said in this notice that they're trying to recoup $38 million over three years. 
which is why you're seeing these big fees. And the SSA is essentially saying they have to follow appropriations law in recouping these funds over that time frame. They are also saying that they need to get this money back so that they don't use their quote unquote administrative funds for ECBSV work and reduce the amount of administrative funding available to serve the public. So that's SSA's position at this point. They haven't said that they're going to change the fee structure, but they are saying that they're working with the Consumer First Coalition and the users of ECBSV to try to come up with a solution here. Yeah, it sounds like an immovable object being met by an irresistible force. So what are any potential solutions that have come to light? Wexler's group, the Consumer First Coalition, is recommending Congress extend the time frame. SSA has to recover ECBSV costs to 10 years. That doesn't necessarily address the funding availability, so we'll have to see what SSA has to say about any legislative language that's put forward. So far, no lawmakers have put forward a bill or even language that would address this issue. Several lawmakers did send the Government Accountability Office a letter last fall about rising fees, and GAO is actually looking into the system, the fees, the costs, and and actually doing an audit. But it just got underway, so it might be a while before that's completed. And the point of all this, though, has to do with improper payments, including from Social Security itself and fraudulent use of Social Security numbers to get other things out of people that are not entitled to them, correct? Yeah, well, that's why this is so interesting. This current system is used just by financial institutions to verify that people applying to a credit card or to the bank are who they say they are. But there's a recommendation to expand ECBSV to other users, and that could help drive more fees, drive down the costs. But the challenges there are that SSA hasn't been authorized so far to add users beyond financial institutions to the system. They are coming up with a plan to actually do Social Security verification for federal agencies. We don't know the details of that plan quite yet. But this issue has been highlighted by the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, uh, Social Security verification as a best practices in the the wake of the pandemic and all the fraud that we saw during that time. $5.4 billion in small business administration loans, for example. A PRAC alert said that Social Security verification, like the type that ECBSV performs, should be a best practice for federal programs going forward. I spoke with Linda Miller, former Deputy Executive Director of the PRAC, about that issue. It's definitely going to help a lot because the fact that very little Social Security number checking is happening right now is being exploited by fraud actors with, you know, abandoned. It's not a panacea. If you're using a full stolen identity without someone's knowledge, then that social security number is going to match up if they have the other data elements. But if it's a synthetic identity where the fraud actor is using a legitimate social security number from one person with information that's either fabricated or stolen from another person to create a synthetic identity, that's going to flag that immediately. Right, but she's on to something there, and that is the wider the user base that's using the system, the less it is for each individual transaction and each individual organization. So does SSA, Justin, have any plans to extend this to other agencies? It has a general plan to extend Social Security verification to other federal agencies, federal benefits programs specifically. It published a notice in the Unified Agenda earlier this year 
that says they will put out a rulemaking in early 2024 detailing the quote-unquote circumstances under which SSA may disclose SSN information to other federal agencies. They haven't said whether they're going to use ECBSV. Jeremy Grant says it makes sense to use the same IT infrastructure, but again, we don't have a broader federal strategy for digital identity verification, and he says that's a problem. This is sort of gets, you know, to sort of the Better Identity Coalition's core thesis, which is if I as an American have already gone through a process, whether it's with SSA to have them give me a number, at the DMV to get a driver's license, with the State Department to get a passport, why can't I ask those agencies to vouch for me when I'm trying to prove who I am online to do the next thing? And I think without an overarching digital identity strategy that sort of focuses on ways that we can leverage some of these newer tools to solve identity proofing challenges in every sector, we're going to continue to be struggling as a country to really deal with all the identity-related cybercrime and fraud that we see. And again, that's Jeremy Grant, coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition. He also served in the National Institute of Standards and Technology doing identity work during the Obama administration. And this is Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks for that report. You're welcome, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 